Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, you'll need a Bible. As we look at select verses in James chapter 1. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you. Keep that Bible. It's our gift to you. We want you to own it and bring it back with you next week. James chapter 1. History is a great teacher because those who know history can learn not to repeat its mistakes, but also because it gives us a wider standard of comparison for our own lives now. If all you know is what is happening today, then it's easy to incorrectly assess your life. We may think we have it bad. When, in fact, we enjoy a lifestyle that, in the past, common people could only dream of. History is a great teacher, and for Christians, church history is particularly helpful as it allows us to compare our lives with brothers and sisters who've gone before. One such anecdote is the amazing story of Marie Durant. In the late 17th century in southern France, Marie was brought before the authorities And she was charged with the Huguenot heresy. The Huguenots were a group of people, believers in France at the time. They were Protestants, so they had left the Roman Catholic Church. And so they were being charged with, in effect, being a Reformed Protestant. And she was 14 years old. And writers from the time tell us she was bright, attractive, and marriageable. She was asked to recant her Huguenot faith. She was not asked to commit an immoral act, to become a criminal, or even to change the day-to-day quality of her behavior. She was only asked to say, I recant. And she refused. And together with 30 other Huguenot women, she was put into a tower by the sea and left there for 38 years. She and her fellow martyrs scratched on the wall of their prison tower the single word, resist. And tourists to this day still visit and gape at that word on the stone. One author opined about this. We can understand a religion which enhances the present. But we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. To sit in a prison room with 30 others and to see the day change into night and summer into autumn. To feel the slow systemic changes within one's flesh. The drying and wrinkling of the skin, the loss of muscle tone, the stiffening of the joints, the slow stupefaction of the senses. To feel all this and still to persevere seems almost idiotic to a generation which has no capacity to wait and endure. One commentator remarked that a key adjective in that opinion points to the power of Marie Durant's endurance. It was said in what I just read, we cannot understand a faith which is not nourished by the temporal hope that tomorrow things will be better. Well, surely we cannot understand if temporal hope is the only thing we have. But if there is a hope beyond this temporal from which we get temporary life, if future grace extends into eternity, and it does, then there may be a profound understanding of such patience in this life, anticipating the next. 
So how can you endure in your difficulties? Today we continue our series titled, What's God Got to Do With It? And we asked three weeks ago the question, what's God got to do with my life in general? And the answer was everything because we were made for God. And we then asked, what determines whether God will make a difference in my life? And the answer was, it depends on what you believe about him. And we learned at that time that behind every sin and negative emotion is a lie about God. Last week, we began to answer the question, what's God got to do with my circumstances? Often difficult circumstances called trials, which are, as you see at the top of your outline, and we have inserted in your program every week an outline of the message. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out. And you see at the top there that we saw last week that we must respond to trials because they are unavoidable, they are unexpected, and they are unlimited. And God tests us in those trials, but knowing that he has a good purpose means that we can, we saw last week, respond to those trials with joy. Verse 2 of James chapter 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. We were reminded last week that joy in Scripture, a working definition of that is an abiding sense of delight that God is at work. God is at work even in the difficulty. We must respond then to these difficult circumstances, these trials, because we all have them. They're ubiquitous in life in a fallen world. And we can respond with joy. But the passage goes on to say, again, verse 2, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith does something. It produces perseverance. And the question then for us is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that the testing of what we believe, it says here the testing of your faith, and I remind you that the word faith in your New Testament is the word for belief, and so it's testing what you believe. Do we believe that testing produces something good? The truth is, as we say in the outline, we can not only respond with joy, but we can respond with perseverance. We're going to see what that's about this morning in your circumstances, in my circumstances. Let's ask God to help us. Our Father, we prayed earlier and acknowledged earlier that we have no right to be here. We are only here because of your grace at work in our hearts to change us, so that you've changed our priorities, so that we would rather be here. In your presence with your people, learning of you, rather than the ease of sleeping in, doing other things. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for radically altering our allegiances and our priorities. Thank you for giving us the desire to be here. And now, Lord, we ask you to accomplish your work in us, in your purpose for being here. Accomplish your work in changing us through your word. Make each of us attentive and open to the changes that need to be made, necessitated by a look into the mirror of the Word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We can respond to to trials with joy and now with perseverance. One commentator says, this verse implies that God is using trials for His purpose. 
Remember, verse 3 says, you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And that implies that God is using trials for his purpose. He's not sitting in heaven saying, I didn't want that to happen, but now that it has happened, let's see how we can make the best of a bad situation. Scripture is clear that God is sovereign. God is in control over everything. I want to remind you of that. Verse 3 is saying that what you believe is being tested in the midst of these trials. Who's doing the testing? Well, it's none other than the sovereign God himself, who's sovereign over everything that happens, including rain and snow that fall. The Bible says, he says to the snow, fall on the earth, and to the rain shower, be a mighty downpour. He's in control and sovereign over seemingly random events. Casting a lot. Proverbs says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. To the events of nations. Dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. On a personal level, he ordained all the days of our lives before we were ever born. Your eyes saw my unformed body, said David in Psalm 139. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. He orders our steps. A person's steps are directed by the Lord. The Bible is replete with all kinds of statements like that. God is sovereign. God is in control. God rules over everything that happens in his world. And to deny God's sovereignty over trials robs people of comfort and it creates a very scary world. Why? Because evil then is out of control. Do you understand that evil is not out of control? That even evil is under God's sovereign control? And so to deny God's sovereignty over our trials denies that he's purposefully working those trials for our ultimate good. And so the hymn writer had it correct. Every joy or trial falleth from above, traced upon our dial by the Son of love. God is using the trials to produce something good. Verse 3 says, perseverance. And it's a word that means to bear up under pressure. It's sometimes translated endurance. As scholar William Barclay defines it, it's the quality that enables a person to stand on his feet facing the storm. We're called to endure difficult people and difficult situations. The person who endures difficult people is someone then who is not easily provoked or easily angered by those people. And the person who endures difficult situations does not lose heart under great trials. So one commentator calls it spiritual toughness, perseverance, endurance in the midst of our circumstances, whether those involve people or just situations. And that testing that verse 3 speaks of is like the refining of a metal. It produces a better product through the process. So picture an athlete who pushes himself to build up strength and endurance for an upcoming race. If it's a 10K run, he may start with 5K in his practices and then gradually extend his distance and speed. And if he's serious about winning, he will be running farther than 10K before the race so that the race will seem easier than what he's conditioned for. And in the same way, when we endure trials by faith, Our faith is stronger for the next trial. We know that we can endure because we've already been through previous trials. 
And so God, through the circumstance that he has brought and allowed into our lives, is preparing us for something in the future if we cooperate and receive what he has for us in it. If we respond properly, then we'll learn to bear up under various kinds of trials. The benefits of doing that don't end with endurance, perseverance. The Bible says elsewhere, we rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, but perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. So not only is recognizing, trusting, believing, having faith in a sovereign God who has designed our circumstances ultimately for our good, including training us for the ability to endure and persevere, not only does it do that, but it also develops character and it develops hope. Character is an internal attitude that says we can face whatever comes, not because of strength we have ourselves, but because of strength God provides. Character is an internal attitude that we can face what God sovereignly places us in. Hope is a confident expectation of a good outcome, even if that outcome is not in this life. Very often the Bible uses the word hope to speak of our confident expectation of the next life. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 speaks of the blessed hope of the Lord's return, for example. If we learn to persevere, then, friends, we will not fall into the New Year's resolution approach to life. You know what I mean by that? (laughs) You know, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lose some weight and, you know, I'm going to start getting to church on time. Just saying. You know, a bunch of, bunch of things, and then they last for about a month, and then we're back where we were. So if we learn to persevere, we'll not fall into that approach, and the intended outcome will be realized, verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. One preacher noted that the word let there implies submission to God, the sovereign God who is testing what we believe and strengthening what we believe in the trial. That word let implies submission to God in the trial. Remember, it's our faith that's being tested and that testing is from God. So when we believe that he's at work doing something good for us and not to us, we'll willingly submit to the work he's doing in our lives. doesn't mean we'll enjoy it nor that it would be wrong to request relief from it. The Apostle Paul, in fact, said, I was given a thorn in my flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. So he asked, but he also submitted himself to God's will and God's work, and he stopped asking when the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you. God chose not to remove that. That's why Paul tells us explicitly that he asked three times. Not a fourth, not a fifth. God was going to complete his work. And if it were to be removed, it would only be removed when that work was complete. Being submissive to God's work in the trial also does not necessarily mean that we don't take steps to remedy the problem. For example, if the trial is the loss of a job, it's right to seek other employment. If the trial is an illness, it's right 
not only to pray, but to seek medical help. If it's a difficult circumstance, it's not necessarily wrong to try to change the circumstance. But friends, whatever God sends our way, whether relief or continuation of the circumstances, remember that he's the Lord of the circumstances, and so we submit to his will in them. After the Lord had afflicted Job, you remember the story of Job and all that he endured. But after the Lord afflicted Job with this extreme difficulty, Job nevertheless said this, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. So we submit to what God is doing. And what God is doing produces this perseverance. And produces, I say in your outline, spiritual growth. God is doing it, according to verse 4, so that you may be mature. So God produces this perseverance. He allows this trial into your life so that you may be mature. Spiritual maturity is a process of growth. It's God's ultimate design that we be conformed to the image of Jesus. But the goal is achieved over a lifetime of gradual growth. It's not completed, in fact, until the Lord returns, until we're with the Lord by death or his return. The Apostle Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia and he said this, My dear children, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Notice that. I, your spiritual mentor, Paul, I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is fully formed in you. Just as labor and delivery are a process accompanied by pain, so too spiritual growth is a process accompanied by trial, but the end goal is Christ-likeness. So we endure because we know the circumstance in which God places us brings spiritual growth. And it produces, I say in your outline, integrity. Verse 4 says the end goal is not only maturity, but that we will be complete. Now, what's the difference between maturity and being complete? Maturity refers to spiritual growth, and completeness refers to spiritual integrity. Now, I say integrity because it comes that word integrity comes from the word integer, which means whole number. And the idea is the one who is complete, the one who's developed spiritual integrity, has had more and more areas of his character tested and refined. And this is necessary because though we may indeed be growing in the Lord, we may be maturing, we still have areas of our character that are less developed and therefore vulnerable. And often we don't know about those vulnerable areas until they're exposed. And one of the ways God exposes them is in the heat of the trial. That's why the Bible says, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You see, we may be standing firm just fine in the current set of circumstances. But a different set of circumstances, a different trial, now reveals different recesses of our hearts that we are vulnerable to. And God wants to strengthen those as well to make us complete, to make us whole. So we may be doing well in one area of our life, but there may be others that are untested, merely awaiting the right occasion to reveal that spiritual weakness. And so God brings different kinds of trials, plural. 
You see, friends, it would be great, wouldn't it? it we think, okay, I understand that trials produce perseverance. Been there, done that. Can we move on? But see, God does this plural. He does this many times. He does this throughout our lives. That's why verse 2 says these are trials of many kinds, of various sorts. Why? To address different areas of our character. Different trials address different things. And so God desires that the result of the trial is spiritual growth and integrity And that as a result, you lack nothing in either of those categories. The end of verse 4 says, not lacking anything. So what's to come out of the trial is that. But there's something you may lack in the trial that will keep its goals from being achieved. What's to come out of the trial is you're not lacking anything. Ultimately, God gives these trials so that we are mature and complete. But in the trial, we may be lacking something that's an absolutely essential ingredient in order for those goals to be achieved. So I say in your outline, we must respond to our trials and we can respond with joy and perseverance. But also we can respond to those trials with wisdom. Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So here are the goals, maturity, completeness. But those goals will not be achieved apart from wisdom. The goal is you don't lack anything. But if you lack wisdom in the midst of the trial, then those good goals are not achieved. So ask of God for wisdom. Now I remind you of what wisdom is in the Bible. It's the application of what you know. It's applying what you know to be true. The opposite, foolishness in the Bible, is not ignorance. Ignorance means you don't know. But foolishness is not ignorance. To be foolish, you have to have knowledge because foolishness is failure to apply what one knows. That's why, for example, the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Why? Because in his heart of hearts and by the abundance of evidence of creation, he knows God exists, but he's failing to apply what he knows to be true. Wisdom is the application of truth. Foolishness is the failure to do that. And in this context, it's applying what you know about trials to the situation in which God has placed you. So what do you know about trials? Verse 3 tells us, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You know that. So now you're asking the Lord for wisdom to apply that knowledge to the circumstance. Further, the Bible says famously, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. You know that. So you're asking God for wisdom to apply that in your circumstance. In the midst of your trial, you know that it comes from God. You know He intends it for good. You know it's designed to result in spiritual growth and integrity. You know that, but you have to apply that. And wisdom is applying what we know. So how do you acquire this wisdom? How do you get it? Verse 5 says, ask God. So I say in the outline, it's available for the asking. So we pray, asking the Lord to help us learn all that he has for us in the trial. 
The song, the last song that we had today, was all about that. It was all about a, a prayer. It would be a great song just to, for you to have those lyrics by your bedstand as a way to wisely think about the circumstances you're in and all the things you're asking the Lord to produce through the difficulty and through the trial. So we pray, asking the Lord to help us to learn all that he has for us in the trial. We know he is working to mature us, so we ask him to help us respond in a way that the goal will be achieved. We know that we're to glorify God at all times. That is, when we say glorify God, we mean to display his character in the way we live, even in the midst of trial. Glorifying God means to do that, display his character, and to extol his character, praise his character at all times. We know that. We know those things, but we need help here, this friends. We need help doing those things. Applying what we know. We need wisdom. And this is a prayer. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. This is a prayer that God is always God's will. For us to ask for wisdom, the ability to apply what we know in the situation at hand, and God says he will give it. The end of verse 5, he gives generously to all without finding fault. So this wisdom will be given to you, it says. If you ask, it will be given to you. It will be given to you without finding fault. What's that mean, without finding fault? It means God will not respond to that request for wisdom with a sort of reprimand. I mean, it, God doesn't speak to us directly. He's given us his word in scripture. But sometimes we ask God and we're wondering, what's he thinking when I'm asking this? And in our mind's eye, we can see God, you know, saying, why are you asking me for this? But God's not going to do that is what James is telling us. Or God is not with impatience going to roll his eyes and say, you should know that by now. Why are you coming to me? God is saying, indeed, I invite you to come to me. I I urge you to come to me and ask for wisdom, and I will give that wisdom. But there is a condition. A condition beginning in verse 6. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So it's available for the asking, but I say in your outline, it's available to the believing. It's available to those who believe. You see, friends, wisdom and unbelief cannot coexist. Now, why not? Because I will not apply what I know, and that's what wisdom is, applying what you know. And I will not apply what I know if I don't firmly believe what I know to be true. But if you approach God in your circumstances and believe what he has told you about himself and his purposes, and then ask him for the wisdom to apply that, he most definitely will. Now, we're told to ask, and God will provide it, but the Bible does not say how he will provide it. 
But I want to take a few moments to disabuse us of a very common misunderstanding about this. Not only when we're in trials, but also when we're just trying to make everyday decisions. There's a common belief among Christians that God directly infuses wisdom into us. And so many people would use James 1.5. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. I ask God and then God is going to give me a spiritual IV. Many Christians honestly are lazy. That's what we want. Just shoot it into me. Sprinkle some spiritual wiffle dust on me. (laughs) Years ago, uh, when I was serving on staff at our parent church, uh, Pastor Thomas, who's this pastor there, and I were counseling a couple. They were having trouble with their son. They didn't know how to discipline him according to the Bible, and he had become kind of wild, disobedient. And so Pastor Thomas started to lay out a number of principles from Scripture that would then uh, turn into things that they should do in order to remedy the situation. And he went through this list of things, and this is going to take some time and prayer and effort, but we're here for you with it. And the, the man, the father, was sitting there, and after Pastor Thomas laid all this out, he said, well, can't we just hold hands and pray? You see, he didn't want to do all that stuff. Let's just hold hands and pray, and the situation will somehow magically be fixed. That's not the way God operates, friends. He's not just going to infuse wisdom into us. So we ask, and we get a kind of mystical feeling about how to act or what to choose. But we know it's not infused because, remember, wisdom is the application of knowledge. And in the case of trials, what you know to be true of God and his purposes in those trials. So how do you get that knowledge that is prerequisite to wisdom? Wisdom's the application of knowledge, but how did you get the knowledge? How do I know that God has these purposes in trials? Well, here's how you know. How, this is how you came to understand that God brings trials and has good purposes for his children in them. It's through his word. You know it because we've been talking about it the last few weeks. You know it because I've been putting all these verses on the screen. You know it because he's told us in scripture. Through passages like James chapter 1, but many others in the Bible as well. So hear this, your wisdom is only as good as your knowledge. And your knowledge was not infused, it was acquired. Do you see why it's so important to be in the Word of God? I've got to know God. I know God through the Word. I've got to know God's purposes. And then, having known about God and about God's purposes, now I want to apply what I know to the circumstances at hand. And I ask God to help me do that. But your wisdom is only going to be as good as the knowledge, and your knowledge was not infused, it was acquired. And you as well acquire wisdom. It's not infused. Proverbs chapter 4, Solomon is addressing his son. And he says, my son, now notice this, get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. The beginning of wisdom is this. (laughs) Get wisdom. (laughs) 
The beginning of wisdom is get it. Acquire it. Go after it. Though it costs you all you have, get understanding. So wisdom is something you get, something you pursue, something you acquire. Like you get, pursue, and acquire knowledge. And like knowledge, you get it through means. It's not infused, not direct. You get it through means. In his word. Through his people. So I'm in a trial. Or I just have to make a a decision in my life. The Bible commends to you. Consulting other godly people. Other people who have been through trials. How did they get through those trials? What did they do? They can remind you of the knowledge that they have of God's word and so on, right? Proverbs 24. In the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Now, because of this false notion of knowledge and then in turn wisdom being infused into us that many people have, Many people take erroneous approaches to just decision-making in general in life. So I'd like to, for the sake of our flock, correct that thinking if you you might have that. And many Christian, good Christian people do. So there are false approaches to decision-making. I'd like to briefly go through four of them. Three of them are wrong. One of them is right. One of the prominent ways that people make decisions, trying to make wise decisions, but one of the ways they do it is what I call feeling-based decision-making, feeling-based. And the idea here is that you ask God for wisdom to make the decision about whatever it is, but you know which decision you should make based on how you feel about it. This is put in language like, I made this decision because I have peace about it. You ever heard that? Don't have to raise your hand. You ever said that? Now, the Bible talks about in Philippians chapter 4, for example, having the peace that passes all understanding. But that's not talking about decision making. Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And I'll say it again, rejoice. And then he goes on to talk about not being anxious or worrying in any of your situations. And if you'll do this, then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But we kind of pluck that out to say peace is a signpost. It's an indicator that you're making the right decision. Let me just say, you might have peace about the wrong decision. It's not feeling-based. Secondly, some people make... Uh, decisions based on opportunity, opportunity-based decision-making. Meaning, something opened up. And it opened up very often in a very strange set of circumstances that we are now interpreting as the move of God. You'll hear people say things like, it was a God thing. Now, that's okay, and I'm not reprimanding you for saying it's a God thing. You know, I don't want to be the the police on every sort of erroneous thing people say. But I don't say it's a God thing, and here's why I don't. Because I believe in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God in that providence, and the truth is everything is a God thing. 
And most of the God things are small, mundane things. The everyday things. And when you're a God thing person, you look for the highlights. You look for the weird stuff. The exceptional, spectacular stuff. And then you label that as a God thing. I just encourage you not to do that. Praise God for everything. He's in and he is active providentially in everything. And so people do that and they say, God just opened this up. And it's put in language, spiritual language, like God opened the door for this. So it must be his will, opportunity-based. You can interpret an open door, walk through it, and friends, it could be the wrong decision. Thirdly, outcome-based decision-making. The idea here is it doesn't help you really in making the decision, but if the outcome turned out well, then it was a good decision. And if it turns out bad, it was a bad decision. That's the idea. But the truth is, I have seen many a person make a bad decision, a selfish decision, even a sinful decision. And guess what? It turned out good. Think about Joseph's brothers. They sell him into slavery. They leave him for dead, in effect. Many of you know the story about how years later, God works through that whole situation. Joseph becomes a high official in Pharaoh's court, and there's a famine in Israel, and so the only place you can get food is in Egypt because Mo, or Joseph has stored food in advance of the famine, and his own brothers come to get food not knowing he's there and in charge. And when they identify that their brother is still alive, and not only alive, but thriving, they seek his forgiveness, he says, You meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, notice the brothers don't say and couldn't say, you know, that was a good decision we made. All's well that ends well, you know. They don't say any of that. It was sinful. It was wrong. The fact that God overrules our stupidity sometimes doesn't mean it was a good decision. But likewise, thanks be to God. It goes in reverse. We can make the wrong decision and God turns it out for good. So what's the right approach to take? It's purpose-based decision-making. Purpose-based. You guys have that? Purpose-based decision-making. You think about the purpose that God has given us. He's told us his purpose for us in Scripture. You think about God's purpose for us to bring glory to him, to advance his mission in his world. And you ask yourself in all of your decisions, including in the midst of trial, Lord, help that to happen. Grant me the wisdom to apply what I know about your purposes in everything, including the circumstance you've got me in. So that that will actually be achieved. Likewise, if I'm planning to buy a house or a car or whatever, I'm Thinking about going to school, purpose-based decision-making. Am I making this decision in order to advance the purpose for which God has placed me here and left me here? So here's your take-home truth, friends. When we respond to life's trials biblically, we grow and we demonstrate the genuineness of our faith. Let's bow before the Lord together. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us.
We thank you, Lord, for guiding us, but guiding us by your word. Your word is indeed a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Lord, you've given it to us. You've given us its precepts and principles. And then we are to get knowledge from your word. And we're to get and acquire wisdom by applying that knowledge to the circumstances that you place us in. So help us, Lord, to be wise people. In all of the circumstances that you sovereignly bring into our lives, the things that we are going through right now, whatever they may be, whenever they may be, help us to be people who first and foremost ask ourselves, what's God got to do with it? What do I know God is doing? What do I know that you have said you are seeking to accomplish? And then, Lord, we ask you for wisdom to apply what we know to the circumstance so that we may indeed grow, become mature and complete, and bring glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.